Marcel Wanders once said, I collect memories. I look for opportunities to try new things, go to new places, and meet new people all the time. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy, and today we are talking about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Yes, I am enthusiastic about this because, as you will know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, Pathfinder is one of my favorite role-playing games of all time. Even though I've actually played more World of Darkness than Pathfinder, I think Pathfinder actually rates a little higher on my list. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons... Derived games have always been in my wheelhouse. They've always been some of my favorites. And the Western fantasy genre has been sort of my bread and butter ever since I was a child. I'm a huge fan of Pathfinder 2nd Edition because I'm a huge fan of getting rid of all of the old muck and going in with a new streamlined design. I am kind of an anti-grognard. I very much go with new and I like exploring new things. And this is as new as you can get. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a combination, in my opinion, of all of the best things that game companies have learned up till this point about what makes a game fun and what makes it easy to run. So I'd like to just jump right into this. We're going to be discussing today the core rulebook and the bestiary, the ones that were released as the first releases of this edition. We're not going to talk about any of the adventure material that's been brought up for this edition yet. Uh, We might tackle that in a later episode, but right now we're focusing on the game itself. Just so you know, the uh, two parts of the adventure path that have been released so far... They're really good. They're dripping with flavor of the world. They really get people into the Galarian setting. But that's not the point. We are talking about the actual rules and what comes in the book. So let's just open our copies of the books here. Chapter one is the generic chapter one that you'll find in literally every role-playing game that exists. What is role-playing? What do you need to play? What's a character sheet? How do you use this book? There are only two things that I really feel bear mentioning. One, there is an explicit mention that the age of your character does not affect anything about them. That means that we don't have age-based penalties for characters, either for being very young or very old, and we don't have age-based bonuses. Now, while there is an argument to be made that verisimilitude suggests we should have age-based penalties for very old characters, in all practicality, it either never came up, was an imposed flavor element that you had to use for some reason, or, most egregiously, was just a way to have wizards with stats that were better than they should possibly have access to, because no one was voluntarily playing an old fighter and taking those penalties for no good reason. There was always going to be a major story reason that that was forced upon you. So I think this is a move in the right direction. The other thing I wanted to mention is that under the section on page 29 for uh, your character's gender and pronouns, characters of all genders are equally likely to become adventurers, record your character's gender, if applicable, and their pronouns on the third page of the character sheet. I think that's a great move in the right direction. Gaming should be inclusive. I don't think there's any good reason to ever alienate people from our hobby. And anyone who's alienated by this is a chud and we don't want them. So let's go on. From chapter one, which is all of the basics, we get into the true meat of the system. 
character creation. So let's go through what actually happens when you create a new character in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Well, first you get your ancestries and backgrounds. Uh, ancestries, we talked about in our preview of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition, is the new term that they use for fantasy races. And I still like it. I think it's definitely a move in the right direction. Uh, race is an increasingly loaded term. Uh, even in fantasy settings where there's massive differences between creatures of different ancestries, like practically alien entities to one another, I think it's still best to talk in terms of ancestry because we all inherit things from our ancestors, be they the size of our ears, uh, how good our eyesight is and all of that. But this concept of race is increasingly a loaded term that we want to avoid altogether. I enjoy the fact that the ancestries give you hit points. It makes first level characters less squishy. Your ancestries also give you access to ancestry feats. What, basically what you have taken from your upbringing. But you also get heritages. Heritages are what differentiates you uh, from other elves that you can't just pick up at higher levels. Now, what's great about this is we mentioned when we were talking about the playtest that it was kind of weird that there were certain ancestry feats that you could absolutely only take at first level because they were something inherent in your character. If you were a goblin with an iron jaw, for instance, you were by definition born with that trait and it was something that you didn't just learn about or unlock in yourself later on. It was something that was always there with you, you know, things like that. These are now under the ancestral heritages, which uh, you choose one of at first level and then the feats are a separate thing that you actually kind of grow into things that you unlock, learn, or discover about yourself as you grow, which we all do throughout our entire lives. We're always learning new things about what our abilities are, what we're able to do, and that's just part of the, uh, I wanted to say the human experience, but it's hard to limit it to just human experience in the context of a fantasy game, so I, I guess I'll say the experience of being a conscious being is an experience of growth, and this is a great way that they manage to get that across. After you select your ancestry, you select your background. I love that fantasy games and that role-playing games in general are really going all in on this you were a person before you were your class. You were a person who learned something while you were being raised and you possibly have a bit of a background before you became a fighter, before you became a rogue, before you became a bard. Even if that background naturally leads into your class, it is a different thing. If you were an acolyte, of course, you, you might be a wizard or a sorcerer, but you were an acolyte beforehand. If you were a barkeep, well, you learned a thing or two. Uh, specifically, you learn uh, to be more diplomatic and you gain the alcohol lore skill. <laughs> Dude, so you know you know how to make drinks, which is fantastic, because why not? It's, it's great. I like the idea of the who you were before you were an adventurer, uh, flavors and informs who you become as an adventurer. That's pretty awesome. So uh, I think that's everything we wanted to say about Ancestry. Uh, the one other thing is we've already mentioned this in the preview, but goblins are now included in Ancestry and half-elf and half-orc are not. They're actually under the human ancestry as heritages of that ancestry. And it kind of answers the uh, elephant in the room question. Uh, Jeremy was talking to me about this before this, but about how we never see half-elves that are also half-orc. Half-elf and half-orcs are always terms that imply a human ancestry. 
ancestry, and this makes that clearer, actually, and just pushes it in. After you select your ancestry and background, you then select your class. Your class is, of course, one of the biggest choices that you're going to make in your adventuring career, and each of the class sections is pretty bulky. You get the other chunk of your starting hit points from your first level in your first class. You gain an ability boost because, well, if you want to be a good rogue, generally you have to have a high dexterity, so why not just automatically get a boost to dexterity? If you're a cleric, why not automatically get a boost to wisdom? Why do you have to tailor your character in a way that implies the class? Why doesn't the class just make it easier to get into? Yeah, it Actually, it works even from a flavor perspective because whether it's something that you unlocked or trained in yourself or uh, just an inherent part of what made this an appealing choice to you, it makes sense that a rogue's going to have higher dexterity just by dint of being a rogue. You know, it's hard to imagine a rogue who just doesn't have high dexterity in some sense when it's a class that's all about dexterity-based abilities. Something I want to mention right off the top about classes, a change that I think is absolutely phenomenal and I want to see how they grow into it, is the change of the paladin into the champion. Now, in the core rulebook, paladins are the only, like, supported kind of champion because all the champion types that are available in this rulebook are good. Lawful good, neutral good, or chaotic good. But I believe wholeheartedly they will absolutely have the neutral and evil champions available in later books, even if the evil champions are largely restricted as a DM thing rather than something that's specifically for players. I enjoy the change of name from paladin to champion. Champion clearly implies that they are a champion of a cause, a champion of their deity's will. Paladin specifically is derived from the knights in King Charlemagne's court who were exemplars in the church, and yeah, that's that's not what someone who is chaotic evil is. Yeah, and then on top of that, uh, paladin is a bit of a loaded term as well, because paladins were the ones who engaged in the First Crusade, and let's not even get into the ugliness that was the Crusades. Champion is definitely a better term, and I, for one, am thoroughly in favor of scrubbing away some of these loaded terms from the game. It's it, it never has served a meaningful purpose. It's always just been the easiest way to get older players to recognize newer concepts within the game. But we don't need that. We're not stupid and we don't have difficulty understanding these things. So there's no reason we need to retain these terms just to make it accessible to people who've been playing for a long time. We're the people who have the easiest time learning new concepts. So, each class has a group of class features, most of which are just, hey, at this level you get a feat for this class. At this level you get a skill feat. But as you go up in levels, you do get some ability... Holy crap, the fighter gets evasion at 15th level. Yeah, uh, evasion's not the same holy cow it used to be. Uh, back in the day, there was actually sort of a thing where they were saying, when you when you design classes, stop giving them evasion because it's such a cop-out ability. But it's actually, I like that. I think it's good. Uh, fighters also get juggernaut, which is the new version of evasion for fortitude-based. So... These things are good because abilities that are familiar are easy to carry over from one class to another, and when they're appropriate for both classes, they shouldn't necessarily need to be the thing that differentiates the classes. So I like it. So, each class gives you class-specific feats. It gives you a choice between a bunch of them, and this is one of my favorite design decisions that they've, uh, that they've done. 
At first level, for fighter, you get a choice of seven different feats. At second level, you get seven other feats that you can choose from. Or the six other feats at first level that you that you didn't choose. You can mix and match the abilities to be as unique as the character that you're giving them to. And I like that. It's not explicitly stated in that section, but if you look at the character sheet, you can see that there's a breakdown of ancestry feats, skill feats, general feats, and class feats and abilities, and each one has hard-coded on the right side where you get those, because the classes do have sort of that 4th edition D&D hard-coding of uh, everybody gets a feat at this level, everybody gets a skill boost at this level, everything gets this... Having said that, I don't feel that it ends up being homogenous the way that I complained about 4th edition being, because for the most part, these things don't feel the same. Uh, 4th edition, it was always, you get these as your at-will abilities, these as your encounter abilities, these as your daily abilities, and everything just kind of massed together into a homogenous whole, whereas these abilities are so different and so unique to the given class that just because everybody's getting something that falls into this broad category at a given level doesn't make me feel like everybody's getting kind of the same thing. Let's see. What what next do we... Oh, one of the things I do like. Multiclassing is a series of feats now. Oh, we've never seen that before. Oh, wait, yeah, that was 4th edition too. That, that was 4th edition. <laughs> Again, 4th edition did so many things right that I think that's what amplified my visceral dislike for it is that there were so many things it did that i was like yeah that's great i love that that by the time it got to the stuff i didn't like which overpowered me i couldn't stand it but that was a good one actually and i feel that that's strong because a lot of times mix and matching classes ended up being a way of massively min maxing characters everybody knows you can dip two levels in fighter and get this disproportionately massive amount of ability from it Whereas dipping two levels in Wizard is nearly useless, except that now you can use scrolls and stabs. So yeah, so multiclassing is good, it's great, it gives you the ability to make your character the exact type of character you want. What if you were a champion who only kinda served your god, and so you want to be a champion fighter? That's totally doable. The next section is skills. And thank, thank you, thank you, thank you, Paizo, for making the skills on par with attack rolls. I don't want to have to memorize 15 different difficulty classes to be able to throw at a party of 8th level characters. We just know that difficulty class is uh, hard, easy. Armor classes are hard, easy. It's just all the same. Yeah, it really does a good job of unifying those things. The attack rolls and skill checks are pretty much the same. Another thing is that there's a lot of unification in the way that things are described. Uh, we, we mentioned this again in our preview, where skills are either untrained, trained, expert, master, or legendary, and that confers certain bonuses that are also augmented by your level. That still carries over, and on top of that, now you get skill feats. Uh, you can, of course, spend general feats getting skills, skill feats, but the skill feats themselves are given to you specifically so that you will spend feats gaining skill-based abilities. And that's good because one of the big problems with 3rd edition and Pathfinder is that feats that augmented how you used your skills were always competing with the more obviously useful combat 
feet. And frankly, it's hard to fight against, hey, you can do more damage with, hey, you're better at lying to people. It's not really a fair competition. So breaking it up so that you are forced to spend some feats on skills does a good job of making characters more rounded and interesting, in my opinion. Moreover, it lets you do stuff during the exploration part of the game. Exploration is a chunk of the game that designers have been embracing as a core tenant of role-playing. If I'm going through a town and I'm going into a market and I want to get the best deal, well, the DM kind of has to ad hoc exactly what the best way of, of finding a bargain. Or they can just go, do you have the bargain hunter feet? Cool. You know exactly what the difficulty is uh, needed to be. Are you a druid who wants to be uh, proficient at uh, healing people? Well, I don't really have enough skill points to take medicine. Natural medicine feat lets you use nature instead of medicine to treat wounds. All those are great things. After skills and feats, we have equipment. I think I mentioned in our preview that my favorite thing they did with uh, equipment is they made weapons have an implied fighting style behind them. If you're fighting with a warhammer, you're going to be uh, using the weight of that warhammer to knock people around, move them around the battlefield. If you're fighting with a great axe, though, you're going to be more likely to be sweeping the battlefield and hitting multiple opponents instead of trying to focus on just one. I mean, a lot of these weapons do a good job of telling you kind of what the implied fighting style is. You're not really bound to that exclusively, but it does do a good job of differentiating weapons that have the same amount of damage, the same damage type, but do different things. And it, in that sense, is going to open up a lot more options for creating new weapons without making them inherently broken. You you can just expand on the abilities that already exist and maybe have uh, weapons that fill the niches that aren't obviously on this list. Because that's how weapons are made in real life. We think of niches that need to be filled, like boar spears for holding boars at bay, because they have a cross guard on them that keeps the boar from pushing forward. And then we make weapons that fill those voids. And that makes sense in the context of a role-playing game, too. And it's going to be cool to see how this gets expanded. Uh, another quick thing I like, I like the fact that shields are no longer just a passive flat bonus. You have to spend an action on your turn engaging your shield, which is an interesting choice. Uh, am I using my shield this turn or am I using an extra attack? Am I using my shield or am I getting further away from the enemies? Am I bashing with the shield and then holding it up to get its defensive uh, bonuses? Who knows? After the equipment section, we have spells. Oh, oh man, this this is ugly here. The uh, oh wow, the spell index is probably the ugliest thing I've ever seen. In how did you describe this? I said that it looks like stereo instruction. It really does. It is this flat, lifeless-looking list of just item after item after item. And I get what they're trying to do. It's it's just a quick explanation of the spells, like false vision, trick a scrying spell, you know, things like that. Makes sense, works really well, but this is, frankly, one of the ugliest lists in any role-playing book I've ever seen. Uh, as indexes go, this is... Well, it's usable, but it... <laughs> I, I will never be enthusiastic to turn to this section, let's say that. That said, the rest of the spell section is really cool. It tells you uh, what level the spell is. They're, they're all listed alphabetically. Uh, how many actions it takes to cast the spell. Uh, what type of action. Somatic, verbal, material, all that stuff. What effect 
happens if you heighten the spell, what additional effects might happen if uh, someone critically succeeds or critically fails against the spell. All in all, I find this to be very usable. The next section is the Age of Lost Omens. Alright, so thank you Paizo for including lore for your setting in the core book. It makes me happy. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Just uh, lists regions of Galarian. And I don't think I've ever seen Galarian broken down this way before. The way that they've got it broken down in this section is a little different from how they break it down uh, elsewise, with large regions being all kind of crammed together. But it's a good overview of the setting. It tells you what to expect in the different places. Uh, It has a list of factions and religions. So exactly what you're looking for in this kind of section. The playing the game section is very streamlined. It's very uh, easy to read. Biggest things to know. You have three actions per round. Huge change. Yeah, that's really simple. You critically succeed if you get uh, 10 or more than the target number. You critically uh, fail if you get 10 or less than the target number. That's very straightforward, very simple to actually learn how to, to use and play the game. Retraining is in core now. Uh, that's good. I actually really like that because uh, more and more I think we're recognizing that part of the fun of the games is having options and just because you made a bad choice early on doesn't mean that you shouldn't be allowed to shrug off that bad choice later. We're all happier when we're allowed to do what we want and have things the way we prefer and just because you had to learn as you went what it is you really want doesn't mean that you should be punished for uh, learning through the game. The last thing I want to talk about in the core rulebook is hero points. Beginning of each session, each player gets a hero point. The hero points let you re-roll a roll. Or if you were uh, down, they let you get do a heroic recovery. I have absolutely no doubt that if hero points are going to be expanded later on and there'll be more things you can do with them or whatever. But right now, that's enough. That's a pretty good section of why one would want hero points. The game's guideline is actually given out a hero point about every hour of play and it's it's a little bit weird to talk in terms of real time but at the same time that's how we live our lives in real time in the real world so i get it and i think it's a good way of keeping the game moving oh we're getting a little uh, long-winded here so let's jump into the bestiary yeah we don't want to miss out on that we were looking through this and i was a little uh confused by some of the choices of what they included in the bestiary and a little put off by some of the choices of what they didn't include in this first bestiary. There's no chitons, for example. But having said that, I, you know, I recognize that I'm enthusiastic about some weird things. And also, the more we look at this, the more we think that it might be because this is what you would need to run some of those early adventure paths, you know? Like, uh, they include Sin Spawn in here, which are pretty solidly tied to the Rise of the Rune Lords and its associated adventures. One of the things I love about this is the redesign of the monsters. All of the goblinoids look goblinoid. They look like they're related to one another. Yeah, in the first edition, bugbears and hobgoblins looked nothing like goblins. And in this edition, they very much look like goblins. And I think that's a good choice. Uh, The redesign of kobolds is weird, but I kind of dig it. It makes them look a little more draconic in a way that I find positive. The biggest thing that I've noticed is how usable these stat blocks are. This book is clearly designed for the DM to have at the gaming table and read from, which... 
it's weird that second edition the, that the second edition monster manual for D anD D wasn't really meant to be usable that way. Yeah, um, this is very straightforward. Everything in here is really accessible. It says exactly what monsters can do, exactly when they can do it, how the monster uh, is expected to be played, and what it represents. Rune giants are in the core rulebook now, which is cool. Unfortunately, the frog hemoth is not in this book. Thank you. No one likes getting killed by something called a frog hemoth. Hate is gonna hate. The inclusion of a lot of monsters that were put in later in the game is a neat thing. And I'm pretty sure there are some monsters in here that weren't in the first edition. But I'm going to be honest, I don't really want to plumb through every single monster that doesn't immediately ring a bell and try to figure out if it was in the first edition. I'm just going to accept that this is a good monster manual. It has what we would hope to find in a Pathfinder bestiary for the most part. So, that has been our look at Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Overall, I am really looking forward to playing this. I I was often heard saying that I was not going to play in a Pathfinder game ever again. 2nd Edition makes it look like it'd be fun to play in, uh, play in again. It looks like it'd be fun to run again. And I like that. I really do. I'm excited about it as well, uh, with the caveat that unlike Jeremy, I am a little disappointed that we're paired back down to very standard fantasy options. I mean, I'm used to running in games where there's a catfolk with a plasma rifle and an android blood rager who's surrounded by nanomachines and a psionic detective as the various characters. And now we're back down to fighters and rogues and humans and elves. And like the catfolk is in the bestiary, but obviously there's no rules on how to play it yet because that would require a whole section on that particular ancestry. And that's going to be a little while coming, I imagine. But overall... I'm very pleased with this. I'm extremely excited about it. And I think that it's going to be a great reboot of Pathfinder as a property and a game. So what do we have up next? So, John, uh, we've looked at a few different adventures so far, but we haven't really looked at any bad adventures. You want to look at something really awful? Um, Absolutely. All right. So next time on Save vs. Rant, John and I are going to be looking at a really, really, really bad adventure. So, once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. I should have no objection to go over the same life from its beginning to the end, requesting only the advantage authors have of correcting, in a second edition, the faults of the first. Benjamin Franklin. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.